Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. We've got myself and Jason Loftus from the Wild and Exposed crew. And our guest tonight, you guys are in for a treat, Daniel Cox, who's a Montana photographer, but I believe he's the first photographer that we've had on the podcast that has conquered all seven continents. So welcome, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks, guys. It's good to be here. Good to meet you guys. It's nice to meet you too, Dan. Yeah. So one of these days, for sure, with Jason being in Utah and me being a Wyoming guy and you being up in Montana, we are bound to cross paths and, and get to shoot together at some point. Yeah, the West is, uh, is as we all know, a, a major um, a major point where a lot of people have a tendency to head towards. And and uh, we've got some beautiful, beautiful wild areas with lots of wildlife. So, so I'm guessing our paths may have crossed a time or two and we didn't even know it. Yeah, more than likely. Do you make it into the park much, into Yellowstone, Tetons? And- I do. I, I, you know, I don't make it in there as often as I'd like. But, boy, I'll tell you, this uh, pandemic, uh, for years, I, I, you know, I earned my living taking pictures. Um, and then about 10 years ago, that kind of started drying up. So now I lead photographic tours like many, many photographers do. And my wife and I take people all over the world. So we're in different places. We're, we go to places that I used to go to produce my work. And so I'm not home as much as I'd like to be. Um, but during the pandemic, it was like going back in time. I jumped in the, you know, my truck. I, I lived out of the back of my truck when I was doing all that. And I, I, I did it for almost a year, just, I, you know, basically self-quarantining with the animals is the way I call it, what I likened it to, and, and spent time just going to some places that I hadn't been to for a long time, and some places that I hadn't been to ever, um, here and even in my own backyard. So it was a lot of fun, Don't, but, and, and, and many of those places involved being in the parks, um, but, but in general, I don't get either to Yellowstone or Grand Teton as often as I'd like. I'm going other places a lot of times. Right, right. Yeah, Ron and I can both relate. I'm sure many of us can. We've talked a lot about it on the show. But, you know, getting back to our roots, so to speak, or getting just spending more time in the places that are local in your backyard that you just take for granted. And, you know, the the pandemic's really forced a lot of us to really rethink that and spend more time. And it's it's been a positive as far as I'm concerned. But, yeah. It, it, it was certainly for me. Um, I actually have got a little program that I did on it, self-quarantining with the animals uh, that's on my YouTube channel if anybody's interested. But Yeah, for sure. Um, but, yeah, it was uh, uh, a presentation I did for Nampa, and then I just turned it into a, a, a movie, basically, or a, a video. So it was fun. It was, the you know, I actually feel a little guilty about it. So many people that we know of, if if you had a normal job or if you you know were living in the city you were all locked down for long periods of time and thankfully you know the animals uh that I was around had no connection to covid and so you know was I was able to get out and just hang out with them and um it was it was a lot of fun so I feel a little guilty because I know so many people that 
the time that they spent during that this pandemic was just miserable, uh, cooped up and not being able to go anywhere and do anything. So very fortunate and uh, can't, you know, can't say enough positive things about how lucky I was to be able to do that. I, I did much the same thing. I got out as much as I could locally, uh, but I do not feel bad about it. <laughs> I feel I feel blessed to be in an area where I can do that. For yeah, sure. I agree. I, I do feel bad for those that didn't have the same opportunity. But. Yeah, that, that that's what I meant. And, you know, it, and the reason I, I, I bring that up is that I don't want, you know, we're very fortunate for those of us who have decided to try to make this a living. Um, it's a unique way to make a living, and but it, it, it affords us some really interesting opportunities. And uh, so, um, I, but I don't like to, I don't like to, uh, rub salt in the wound of people who have have been stuck inside for a long period of time. So, yeah, but it's it is what it is, and um, it actually worked in a really positive way for me. Although, it really put a hamper, you know, a damper, I should say, on our on our uh, ability to travel. And so we basically haven't, you know, I haven't I haven't worked for two almost two years. Uh, we're just starting to travel again, and um, that's been fun too. Yeah, so let's get into that a little bit. When did you start in photography? Well, I was a, I was like a lot of people. I was pretty young. I was 16 years old when I started kind of getting excited about using a camera. My father was a you know shot pictures. He wasn't. He didn't really shoot a lot. He had five kids he was raising, and back in those days, it was all film and processing. So it was tough for him to be able to justify. Uh, the, you know, that sort of stuff. But he did get me interested. He, you know, he had a camera with a telephoto lens on it. Um, that, I don't know what it was. It just kind of intrigued me. And I remember watching a TV show. I remember where I was sitting and there was a couple of guys or what, there was a guy in a, a, a dark room and he was developing prints. And, um, and I went, man, that's, that is so cool. It's like magic, right? And that's what really hooked me. And then and my father and I, you know, I spent years as growing up with cousins and uncles and, and so forth, hunting and fishing with my dad and my cousins and uncles. We had a lot of great, many, many great trips trips into uh, the Black Hills of South Dakota, the cornfields of South Dakota, hunting pheasants and whatever. And so I had this love of the outdoors and I enjoyed photography. And so it just kind of made sense uh, when I started thinking about doing photography to kind of think about wanting to specialize in that aspect of it while well it actually started out as a lot of I, I did a lot of stuff for the hunting and fishing magazines early on in my career at about i think i sold my first picture to fly fishing magazine it was called fly fisherman i don't think it's around anymore uh, when i was 18 years old and then and then i just started gravitating towards i did a lot of work in the early days for field and stream sports field outdoor life um and uh, yeah that sort of thing so um, it was early, um, not as early as some kids get after it a little a little earlier. But but boy, once I latched onto it, um, it's kind of crazy. My father thought I was pretty pretty nuts uh, to think about trying to make a living in this business. And um, but he's 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 kind of come around, and it took him about thirty years, but he came. <laughs> <laughs> now he sees it your way. Yeah, yeah. He well, you know, it's funny. His dad's now eighty six. He just went through bypass, double bypass surgery, and you know, he's he really admires the fact that I was able to 
go do what I wanted to do. And, and, and so, you know, like I said, he was raising five kids at, at early in the, in his, in his twenties. Uh, you know, that's, that, that puts a binder on your, your adventurous spirit and, and your wallet to, to be, ha- to have an adventurous spirit. So, yeah, um, we live in a different time and, uh, he would have loved to have done something similar. Excellent. For everybody listening, we got Dan's name from Nampa. The reason that they forwarded his name to the podcast is because we've got Polar Bear Week coming up. And Dan goes up and works in Churchill. And uh, with, did you say with the Polar Bear, International Polar Bear Foundation? Well, it's actually, the group is called Polar Bears International. It's a group that um, started in the... Uh, it's kind of a kind of a long history, but they started back in the 80s and 90s. Originally, they were called Polar Bears Alive, which is kind of a strange name, as opposed to dead. Um, but the the concept was there was a photographer um, who who started the organization, and he he started going to Churchill when he heard about this place called Cape Churchill, and uh, and his name was Dan Gurevich, and Dan was adamant about you know thinking polar bears really they should only be. You know, in this area, there should be no uh, hunting of them. There should be no research because in that area they were marked for research. So he had a lot of things that were kind of kind of ticked him off um, when he was uh, up there taking pictures. So he started this little group called Polar Bears Alive. Anyway, he died in the mid-90s, and a good friend of mine, uh, Robert Buchanan, uh, took it over. He was uh, came from the corporate world. He took a tiny little nonprofit called Polar Bears Alive, changed the name to Polar Bears International, and uh, they've turned into one – amazing little conservation group, the nonprofit that does phenomenal work. And, uh, and so I've, I've been working with them. I, I started working with, with Robert who started, as I mentioned, took the organization over and I started working with him back in the nineties, helping him with photography. And, and at mostly at that time, just photography, I eventually started doing a little more videography for, with them. Um, but, it was that connection with Robert that brought me in, and eventually, uh, he they needed you know they were growing so fast they needed to settle the organization down. He was literally running it out of his. He, he and his wife sold their home in Florida. They retired. He they've been living in their great big beautiful RV for the last fifteen years, and that's where he was running the organization out of. And um, and eventually it just got too big and he had to settle it down. And I convinced him to, to do that here in Bozeman, Montana, which is kind of strange because polar bears don't come here from Bozeman. But Bozeman has a lot of, of really uh, dedicated people who are are interested in working with conservation groups and nonprofits. So a good friend of mine, Krista Wright, who is now the CEO and, and director, of, I guess you'd call her the uh, executive director and CEO of, of Polar Bears International. She was started out with Robert, uh, Robert as his uh, right-hand gal, and uh, she eventually took it over, and she's just done amazing things with it, taking it to another level. So, yeah, we're, we're fortunate. So I, I share, actually, uh, an office with PBI here in, in Bozeman. We have we have combined office together and we still work together. Um, you know, I help them with images and, and video and, and that sort of thing. Although they have their own multimedia department now on their own. So I'm not doing as much as I used to, but I still am an advisory role, take an advisory role as well as helping produce projects now and again, um, 
and and you know on polar bears and and the Arctic in general. And under that, um, kind of a long explanation. I apologize about that, but just to sum it up, I started uh, a, 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 what I call the Arctic Documentary Project about. 10 years ago, and this is an under under the umbrella of Polar Bears International. This is a, a part of the nonprofit that takes me to the places throughout the Arctic to document the things that are happening in the Arctic uh, due to climate change and the changes that are taking place. So that's how I'm involved with them now, mainly with the Arctic Documentary Project and helping them with uh, their kind of day-to-day things when they need it. Now, have you primarily focused in Churchill, or have you been – in Alaska, and no, I've been well. I've been in Alaska. I've been I've done quite a bit of work in Alaska, um, Norway. You know, Svalbard, Spitsbergen. The only place I guess I really haven't spent much time. Uh, we've done a lot of in, a, lot, a lot of work in in the Churchill region and uh, at one other place in Canada, um, but uh, have not done anything in the in the Russian Arctic. Uh, but the other parts I've, I've been to most of them. But yeah, so we've we've done a probably the second most photographed place that I've worked is is Svalbard and, and uh, in in Norway, the Svalbard Archipelago in Norway. So uh, yeah, um, yeah, been been over across you know across most of the Arctic. The Russia is a little bit more difficult to access, is it not? It is. It is. It's dicey. I, I actually had a friend um, that I. That I, a gentleman that I knew from from Japan, a very successful photographer, and he and I were talking about it. I met him up in Churchill a number of years ago, and he was telling me that he he was you know put together a trip to Russia, and to give you an idea, um, he says he had he had a round trip ticket on this this little tiny airline that went to he was working off of the what's that island. Um, God, the name escapes me right now. But he was working off this little island that did have supposedly commercial air traffic. But he bought this two-way ticket, and he was supposed to be there for three weeks, and he didn't get back for three and a half months. And when the plane finally arrived, the excuse was – Luckily, he had he had local people that helped him get through, you know, with food and all that sort of thing. There was some local natives there, but he said uh, they told him, "Well, a round trip ticket is when we get enough people to come back again and get you, and then it comes back." And man, when I heard that, I said, "You know, I don't think I need to go there. I don't really want to go there very bad." It, and that's what I've heard about Russia is it's just so unpredictable. You just, you know, you just can't trust what you, you can't make plans. You will be disappointed. And maybe left somewhere. <laughs> Michael, one of our other hosts, has wanted to go over there and photograph their brown bears. And yes, yes, and that's a unique situation. Um, I lost a very good friend, another Japanese uh, photographer who who was uh, – Michio and I were just getting to know each other. We were going to be going to Japan, and in 1996, I think it was, he was in – in the areas that this, your, your friend is most likely talking about, Kamchatka. And uh, Michio was pulled out of his tent, killed and eaten by a brown bear there. And and what's interesting about that story, it's a horrible story, but Michio spent, uh, he was a very successful photographer. If you guys get a chance, look him up, Michio Hoshino. He was literally a rock star, It had the status of a rock star in Japan. Um, they really take their wildlife and natural history photographers seriously over there. And he uh, 
NHK, which is the equivalent of, let's say, uh, our national public television station, um, would come to Alaska. He lived 10 months a year in Alaska, and he, they would go to Alaska for uh, once or twice a year to document him working in Alaska, and that's where he spent most of his time. And when he went to Kamchatka, um, it was, it's interesting. He, you know, it looks like Alaska. It smells like Alaska. The fish are the same. The brown bears are the same. The habitat looks almost identical. The big difference is it's not in a national park that is run by U.S. And so the bears had been fed and, uh, this one particular bear had been known to be a problem and, uh, it took him out of his tent one night and killed him at, at he was 41 years old. So it's kind of you got to be careful when you go into those places. Um, you know, I talked to other photographer friends of mine who we, we discussed it, and we all said, you know, we'd have done the same thing. I mean, we we wouldn't have been fearful because it looks just like what we we grew up with and and we're used to in Alaska. But in in Kamchatka, it's a whole different ball game. The bears are can be fed. There's been many many documented cases of of TV stations coming out from Moscow and they'll have, you know, they'll be feeding them dinty more type stew. I don't know what the Russian version of that is or whatever. And then these bears get used to associating people with food. And, and, uh, this, this big bear took Michio right out of his tent. Sad story. It was a great man. It was a great man. Terrific photographer. If you, I have heard he of did, him. He did numerous books for Chronicle books. Um, and uh, a lot of his work is in Japan, but, uh, but you can see his stuff here too. So we're, what, Jason, go ahead with uh, the highlight question because I'm I'm kind of intrigued as much as you've done. Right, right, yeah. I don't know. This is going to be. We, we might let him have like five or six. <laughs> right, I'm I'm good with that. One for each continent. Yeah, there you seven. There you go. Um, no, we have we have a standard question we ask all of our guests, and it's kind of a fun one. It's not an easy one to answer for a lot of folks, and you'll understand as soon as I ask it. But. Um, we we ask our guests what is the one what is your favorite outdoor experience that you've ever had, and that could be either doing photography or anything else. It doesn't have to be photography related, but just your favorite outdoor experience. Well, you know that's that's actually kind of I, I, I don't hesitate too much on that. I, I one of the it, it revolves around photography. Um, uh, it was the first time I'd ever gone to uh, South Georgia. And and seeing the the king penguins, um, you know, we it's it's hard to it's hard to imagine the numbers of of animals that we used to have here in North America at one time. Uh, there, there was, you know, as many as 65, 60 to 65 million bison on the plains of, of, of North America. And I've always, over the years, that's always intrigued me to try and understand what that kind of, what those kind of numbers would feel like of, of some animals. I, I went to uh, southern part of Tanzania in, in 1998, I think it was, somewhere around there, uh, during the southern part of the wildebeest migration when they're at the southern part of the, of the Serengeti. And, and I went there mainly because I had heard of, you know, the three million animals that come through there. And so I'm, I constantly find myself kind of trying to figure out if there's a place that gives me a feeling for what 65 million bison might have been like on the North American plains. And to be honest with you, I've never found it. Although, although the, 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 uh, 
South Georgia came closest with the number of penguins, king penguins that were in some of the rookeries. And it's really, it's really hard to imagine those numbers, uh, to see the animals in those numbers. So that, that's, you know, that was the first time I went to South Georgia was, I think, 1995. And when I got a chance to really see these massive numbers of animals that came the closest that I had at that point come to seeing what, you know, the, the number of bison might be like in, in North America. But even then, I mean, 65, you know, it's, I've also come to realize, you know, you wouldn't obviously see all those animals at one time. But it is just mind-boggling to try and understand the numbers of animals we used to have in North America compared to what we have today. And so that was one of the most um, memorable things that I did early on in my career, for sure, when I got out and got a chance to see the uh, king penguins uh, in South Georgia. And I'm sure you've been to the uh, Sandhill Crane migration down in North Platte, Nebraska. Well, you know, I actually haven't, and I've wanted to oh, do really? that for ages. Yeah, and and um, I have, you know, I've, I've spent time at, down at Busto Apache, um, uh, and I've I've wanted to get to the Sandhill Cranes there in, in the Platte River area, and I and that's that's on my list. That's on my list. That's on my bucket list. You know, I got a lot of people that travel with us to say, "Oh, this is my bucket list." What's your bucket list? I want to go to North Platte, Nebraska. <laughs> what you want to go to North Platte, Nebraska? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been to Africa. I don't want to see some of this stuff that I, you know, I've just been traveling so much that I can't get out and see some of the things that are that are close to home. As far as the type of event that you're talking about, I think that is the closest thing that I can think of. You know, you've got four to 600,000 cranes in a very concentrated area along the North Platte River. And just the sheer noise I've got a couple of videos that I took with an old camcorder and just the volume. It's crazy how loud well, that I is. May, I, may, I may pick your brain on that one. Yeah, for sure. I, I'd we, go down there. Be down there. Yeah. I'm always game to go back uh, because that's, you know, that's where I saw my first hooping crane. I photographed i don't know how many thousand i couldn't even begin to guess how many thousand sand hills were in front of the camera at one point or another but it's it's unbelievable and i i would guess that the king penguins are almost that loud there's just constant noise yeah they are they're really really loud yeah but so are cranes i mean cranes are crazy i mean the cranes are nuts that's what i love about them is they've got such a great voice and when you get them all together they're it is it is impressive yeah, but the rookeries that I've seen for the king penguins—it's almost like they're in these giant amphitheaters. They just occupy these entire bowls. Yep, yeah, they're—they're they're typically, you know, very often at the mouths of the rivers that are coming out of the out of the mountains. You know, South Georgia is an amazing place that uh, reminds reminds me of being in the Canadian Rockies, um, uh, but just surrounded by water and. And it's actually, you know, you hike back up into some of these valleys that, and you sit down up on the tundra and you're looking across the valley and you're just waiting to see a grizzly come down through the willows or something, but there's nothing. That, and I have to say, people ask me, well, you know, where's your favorite spot? I mean, my spot's Antarctica and South Georgia, whenever I go, you know, I, I love those places, but they don't have any of the big, you know, megafauna that I just grew up 
loving. And uh, boy, when I'm when I'm away from that, it, it's it's an inter- it's a it's a very strange feeling to be in some what looks like Rocky Mountain country that is just unbelievable visually. But you know, the wildlife is all down there at the mouth of the river. Penguins and elephant seals and fur seals and that sort of thing, but you're not going to see a grizzly coming down through the down through the uh, the willows. The right time of year, some of those islands is where the orcas come and hunt from the shoreline, right? Yep, yep, they do. Yep, there's there's some pretty cool things. That's uh, that spot you're talking about specifically is in Chile, um, and uh, yeah, they're they're known to come up on the beach and take seals off the beach, and um, yeah, I'd love to see that someday, possibly, who knows. There's so much to see. Too much. <laughs> yeah. There's so much, no, so many places to go and so much to see, it's hard. But. It is, it is, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it really is, and thankfully we're, we've, we're blessed. Um, hope, it, hope it stays that way. Yeah. You know, it's interesting real quick, um, side note to your story. I really like the way you made that tie to why you liked the penguins in South Georgia so much. And I think I've told the story before on the podcast. I'll just really summarize it. But um, had an experience in Yellowstone actually where I felt like I got a glimpse, a small glimpse of what it might have been like to have, you know, a bison, a, a, a large group of bison, um, you know, migrating across the plains. And it was in Lamar Valley, um, and just all, like all the bison at once decided to just they, they were going to move. They were all going, and were and they were running. They weren't just like walking; they were running. And so, probably five or six hundred, you know, bison roughly, just line after line coming through the area with the dust flying, and you could feel the ground shaking. And you know, it was like I said, it's a small. It was a small glimpse into it. I, but but that, I've had that same intrigue and wonder. I would love to have been able to experience that. You know what I mean? But yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, and and the, you know, what it was like to be in the American West without fences everywhere. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I read a lot of Native American history, and the you know we've got large bison ranches north of us, and you can kind of see what the countryside possibly could have looked like. But again, it stops in one drainage. It doesn't continue for miles and miles and miles. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's you know, we, the, the, had we been, you know, born a hundred years earlier, we would have had have some views of this stuff or at least close to it. Maybe, maybe we'd have to be 200 years earlier, but, um, we wouldn't have as much fun with camera gear. Exactly. No. Exactly. You had to work a little harder for a shot at that point in time. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Yep. I was just going to say we were talking before the podcast, I think, and we were talking about how we need more of those places like Yellowstone, right, to be able to have everybody enjoy these places. Or, you know, we're loving them to death, and it's not a matter of you know shut them down and put keep people out. It's let's let's take some of this federal land that we have. And let's turn it into more places like Yellowstone, right? So we can all enjoy them. It is. It is. And, uh, you know, I, I guess that, yes, with you and I, were, we were chatting briefly about how I, when we, we take people to some of these places, not just here, but around the world and other places, but, you know, I hear, I hear it regularly. Wow. Man, there's a lot of people here. These, this, this is getting crowded. And I go, I know it is. You're right. Um, uh, so let me encourage you to, you know, write your senators, write your congressmen if you're talking about places in the United States and, and express to them that, you know, no, 
we don't want to see this, you know, federal land sold off or chopped up. We need more of this this type of places. We don't need fewer. And, um, you know, the only way they understand that is if you get your, you know, get on your emails and, and, and send off letters and, and notes to your representatives because it's an important part of our, our democracy is, is expressing what we'd like to see happen and, and uh, hopefully working with people to do that. But, yeah, I mean, Yellowstone, I think uh, this year Yellowstone had 2 million people in August. I mean, when I moved out here, they they broke a record in the early mid-2000s of 3 million people the entire summer and, you know, the op- the general open p- period of, of the park. And this last year we had 2 million in August. Pretty crazy. It's hard to fathom, but at the same time, people have been cooped up for so long, they're tired of it, and they don't go to the big – you know, parks uh, like Disneyland, that that type of park, um, they're getting outdoors and and seeing the country that way. It is, it's true, um, and you can't you can't blame them. It's a, I mean, that's why we that's why we do it, right? We know how we know how beautiful and how much fun it can be. That's that's what it boils down to. You kind of led into it. It'd be a nice segue. You were talking about the people that you take out on these trips around the world. Where do you find that people enjoy the most? Well, Africa is really a big a big draw for us. Um, we we do a we've 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 been going to Kenya for I don't know twenty five years. I've been going there for over thirty years, but we've been taking people there. Um, uh, I guess we actually haven't been taking people for probably more than twenty years. I was kind of throwing in some of my time spent there. But South Africa is kind of where we're, we're finding um, most people are interested in now. Uh, Kenya has, you know, a perfect example of what we're talking about, about over overdoing something. Kenya, at, at, in the 90s, when I first started going to Kenya, the Masamara Game Reserve had had one lodge per 50 kilometers. This is what I was told by my guides uh, a couple of years ago. So I'm going based on what they're telling me. And today the the ratio is one lodge per f- four kilometers. So they've more, you know, I mean, they've just dramatically increased the number of lodges in the, par- in the park. And you don't necessarily see them. They pretty well hide them. But they're hiding them in areas where, you know, leopards used to hang out and, and um and hiding them in areas, and then and then also, you, it doesn't look like there's all that many lodges in the park compared to where there used to be until you see the vehicles around animals that are are just you know, uh, you know, it looks like a, it looks like a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a traffic jam out in the middle of the savanna. So so we. We're waiting. There's supposed to be some things happening in Kenya in the next few years where they're going to try and solve some of that. Whether that happens or not, I don't know. And so we've kind of moved over to South Africa because they do a really good job of kind of uh, managing the users and, and the and the visitors much more effectively in a way that's that's good for the animals and good for the viewers and photographers and. So that's that's kind of where we spend a lot of our time, and we we get a lot of people wanting to go there. Um, we're doing, you know, polar bears. I've always kind of been known for polar bears. This is the first trip this year that we're we're actually doing to go photograph polar bears, where we're going to take a group of people. So that's going to be fun. 
My wife, um, unique story of my wife is uh, her father started the polar bear viewing industry in Churchill back in 19, late 70s, early 80s. And, and uh, Tanya and I met while we were up there. Well, I was up there in the 90s. Um, we got married and her father sold the company in early 2000s. And so this is her going to be her first time going back up there, kind of being a part of the of what she grew up with. So we're excited about that. That's interesting. You married well. I did. I, I, I you know, she was, it's funny because I was going up there for almost 10 years. Uh, through the 90s, I went up almost every year. And uh, and she would, she would run the lodge for most of the season, which was about two and a half months. And the last two weeks is when I would go. She would always bail because uh, she was, she'd been out there for two months and she, her father would replace her with somebody else. And one year she decided to stay and the rest is history. <laughs> so we hadn't we hadn't met for ten years going up there, and then all of a sudden we met. So, but that was oh my god, that was uh, twenty twenty five years ago. <laughs> so, so polar she, bears are near and dear to your heart. They are, yes, they are. Her <laughs> father, yeah. If you actually, she's if anybody's interested, there's a film out. You can get it on Netflix. It's called Polar Bear Alert, and it's it's kind of the story of how her dad got started. This photographer I mentioned to you in the very beginning of the program, we were talking about Dan Gurevich. Uh, went to Churchill, met her dad, her dad, and he got up there trying to figure out how he was going to get out to Cape Churchill, which is where the bears have a tendency to congregate. And and Tanya's dad had uh, an, a kind of an old contraption type, you know, four-wheel rig that he made from scratch that, that, that he would go hunting with. And so he, he, uh, he got together with Dan Gurevich, and Dan and him went out to see if they could find polar bears, and uh, they found them. And the next year he came up and, and Tanya's dad put a trailer on the back of that rig that he had. And then the next year it was a little bigger, a little nicer. And by 1981, National Geographic comes up to do a story about him and, and this film uh, called Polar Bear Alert. And then it just blew up and, you know, that was the rest is history. He's uh, He made a very good living for a lot of years taking people out to see polar bears. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's interesting. And it, it's interesting and you can probably comment on ecotourism worldwide it's it's getting huge it's another you know it's like yellowstone having that many visitors there's places all over the world now where people have better means you've got easier transportation to get from place to place so it's allowed for ecotourism to boost the economy in several of these different areas yes uh you know ecotourism is uh double blades sword um and uh we as photographers it's it's always been one of my uh one of the difficult things i i struggled with when i was really doing a lot of work with magazines and publishers um trying to decide you know what stories i wanted to pitch and i never did pitch stories that were about places to go i i, I would do stories about animals or subjects that could maybe be, you know, seen in lots of different places or not just one particular spot that would attract a lot of attention. And it was really even at that, you know, during the days when I was really working hard to, to get story ideas to magazines and publishers that I worked with, um, there were a couple stories that came to my mind that I thought, you know, this I, this could go. But I just decided, you know, I don't want to – we as photographers, um, we start out – 
I think myself, I know I did, and I, I hear this from a lot of other photographers. We love these places we go to. We decide that we want to try and and convince people that we need to love these places, and we do it with our photography. And um, and we've done a really good job. And the downside is that it's you know it's it's created this massive influx of people to these these areas that maybe can't handle it all all, all those numbers so um so ecotourism is a double-edged sword i think i think it's it's more it's more positive than negative if it's handled properly like south africa does um they do a great job in making sure that the the wildlife and the and the preserves are are well taken care of and 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 managed uh in a way where 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 the you know the human element doesn't get out of hand, we we see we don't always see that in the United States uh, um, and other places. Um, and so I gave the example of Kenya and South Africa and how they handle things differently. But um, yeah, it's uh, the, the positive thing about ecotourism. I, I've I've always hoped is that if we can get people convinced that you know. Animals have as much of a right to be living here and, and, and prospering as we do, then we might get a chance to always see wild animals. But if we don't convince them that, there's no hope. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, the people who are just wanting to pave parking lots and put up malls and that sort of thing will win. Um, and I'm not so sure that would, isn't going to be the case, but we do we do have a pretty strong history and and uh track record in the united states for people getting up in arms and and really pushing for some of these beautiful areas that we've saved and um it's not a perfect record but you know we've we've got some pretty neat places in the united states that we all get to go see and and take advantage of now another thing is that happens and uh i hear this a, a lot of times from older folks that i run into that say you know I'm never going to get to the National Wildlife Refuge, you know, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge where you got these pictures, but I am just so thankful knowing that it's there. And I mean, that's that's really a special personality that says, you know, I I can't even take advantage of this, but I'm happy to know it's there. It's it's makes me it makes me warm and fuzzy to think that you can go take pictures there and bring them back and show me. So, um that's pretty special. And uh, it doesn't happen with everybody, but um, I've heard it. I've heard it quite a bit, and it's pretty neat to meet people like that that feel that you know their tax dollars are helping support something that they may never ever see. Yeah, you know, one of those successes this last year, uh, actually, a guy that's living in Churchill now, uh, Drew Hamilton, and and many others. I went to bat against the proposed pebble mine up in Alaska, and fortunately, that is shut down for now. But that's that keeps coming back. It does. Yeah, yeah. The pebble mine is a big deal, and um, we we're very fortunate when things turned the way it did for the for pebble mine. Yeah, that's a that's a big deal. Well, when you get a son calling his dad out, people look at things differently. So that was it was good to see. Yeah, and photography is, you know, I mean, thankfully, you know, photography over the decades has been a big 
it has been a tremendous tool in, in getting people interested and in, in helping create that interest uh, from people who will never get there. There's a lot of people who have no idea where the Pebble Mine is. But when they see the brown bear pictures that come out of Katmai National Park and the coast, the coastal Katmai and uh, the habitat in general, the um, the watershed that uh, uh, that the Pebble Mine would affect, and, you know, they they take note. And... Um, yeah, without without support, never get it. We would never gotten that shut down. Yeah, for sure, and that goes back to those letter writers, like you were talking about earlier. Yeah, yep, that's for sure. Yep. <laughs> so I keep looking behind you, and sorry, <laughs> Jason, too. you were <laughs> no, me too. Yeah, <laughs> I wanna I wanna ask about. There's two covers from National Geographic that be remiss if we didn't uh, discuss the opportunity for you to get on the cover of that prestigious periodical. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I was very fortunate in the early 2000s. Um, you know, I had I had uh, I had pitched a story to him on Snowy Owls, which is the is one of the two covers up there. Um, and again, this is kind of gets back to these stories that I, I, I picked that uh, – were about subjects as opposed to a place. Um, a good friend of mine, I became I became good friends with a, a owl research, uh, an owl biologist named Denver Holt, who runs an organization called the Owl Research Institute here in Montana. And it started out. I lived north of, of Bozeman here, about twenty five miles, and I would see great grays on, on a fairly regular basis. Long story short, um, I finally found a nest, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't. You know, I wasn't doing anything wrong in trying to photograph this nest. So I called him and talked to him about it and said, you know, um, I found this nest and I'm hoping to make sure that I, I do it properly. And so he and I got to know each other. And um, um, and so I photographed the nest and everything went well. And I sent him pictures for his, his own use and such. And... Uh, uh, and so we became kind of we became somewhat acquainted with each other. But he had kept on telling me about this project he was working on in in Alaska on snowy owls. I should come up and check it out. Well, I didn't think it would be all that interesting. I mean, I I I wanted to see snowy owls, but I just figured you know um, it'd be tough. And and so anyway. Uh, one year I decided my wife went up, my wife and I went up, we were in Alaska. We had, we were going to be going into the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, had that trip fall through. And I said, you know, we should go up and visit Denver. And, uh, so let's go see him. So we did. And I spent three weeks. Um, I could not believe the, the opportunities that were there. It was actually, it was very fortuitous. Um, he's been studying snowy owls. He's got the longest running snowy owl project in the world. And there might, he says, there might be one person in Russia, a gal that might have a year on him. But anyway, he's been at it. I think this is his thirty-second year. And the year that I went up there to see him was the most nests that he had in the area uh, of any year he'd been studying them. So I got very lucky. There, you know, there's a lot of luck that goes with this wildlife photography. Um, but I, so I really understood that it was unique, and so we stayed there and photographed for three weeks, and then I came home and pitched the story to National Geographic. Um, but I like when it, the two stories I've done for them, I, and I did a couple. I did a, I shot a couple other ones that didn't make it, and that happens. Um, I like, you know, I never did actual assignment work for them. I always like to do the project and then go to them and show them what I'd, I'd, I'd done. Um, I really think that, you know, under the assignment, um, you know, category, 
You have a tendency, uh, it, it worries me about photographers who work on assignment, especially with wildlife and natural history, is that, you know, you, you're, you're, you're feeling in the back of your mind constantly, I, I got to get these pictures. I got to get something that's really amazing or I'm not, you know, going to get get my, get my you know, story published, my check, et cetera. And so I, I never, the two stories I did for them, I, I did on my own and then went to them later and, and uh, showed them the material and it, and it worked out. So that was the two stories I did for them. But the second story was on Great Grail. So I met Denver on the first story, or well, I met Denver doing Great Grey Owls and then he invited me up to do the Snowy Owls and we got our first story published with Nat, Nat Geo on Great Grey Owls. Um, but I'm sorry, on Snowy Owls, and then and then later uh, we got together and, and did another piece on Great Greys, and I had shown them the great, I had shown National Geographic the Great Grey stuff that I had uh, after I'd done the Snowy Owl stuff, and and they wanted to see more of it. So um, yeah, that's how it worked. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting process working with them. Um, I had an editor that was very good, uh, but they, they're they very, you know, you'll shoot on the Great Grey story. I probably had 15,000 images that I shot, and you get to, you know, you're lucky if you if a story, uh, if, they're, if they run 8 to 10 images, you're very lucky. And so you really have to cut down on on what you present, and that's what, that's what your editor does with you is they go through your pictures and try to come up with, with the uh, photos that you really feel passionate about and that and and and, and what will work for the magazine and that was one of the things that was really fun about John Ashavi my editor was that he always gave me the opportunity to say all right which pictures do you here do you really think are special and um and it gave you a chance to go you know this one and this one and they didn't always make it cuz maybe something else was going on where they had to have a picture in the snow as opposed to the image that you wanted in the summertime or whatever but he did give you a chance to to fight for you know a picture because you know ninety nine point nine percent of them were going to be hacked on the on the cutting room floor and so you know and a lot of people don't don't really get that it's fun um, with the people that travel with us we have a, a a place on our website where we encourage people when they're done with our trips to upload their twenty five favorite pictures to the website and and boy I got a lot of pushback when I was we first put that thing together it was going to be 10 pictures and uh <laughs> my wife and my assistant here in the office they all said 10 pictures and then I we told our people 10 10 pictures that's not enough and I go guys you got to realize I mean a big part of learning good photography is cutting it down selecting you know it, we're all guilty and I was when I first started out as well had a really unique situation that took place and I you know I wanted to show somebody 10 pictures of that unique situation and you know there were a couple head turns that were a little different but basically they're the same picture you got to you got to really figure out how to just narrow it down and just show the most beautiful image that that you feel came out of that that situation and that's what national geographic makes you do is that you you do not get a lot of space you got to narrow it down and boy i'm telling you there's a lot of pictures that you're going oh my god we can't use this no you can't use it <laughs> <laughs> sorry that'd be hard right yeah oh it's it's uh-huh. it's it's mind bending man i mean you're sitting there going you're going to cut that one yep it's going <laughs> <laughs> you're ouch yeah, but that's life. Yeah, yeah. I can appreciate what you talked about with the assignment work because 
when you're assigned, not only are you feeling the pressure, but these editors, especially with Nat Geo or, you know, I did a project for BBC this spring. They've seen the best of everything. So they want the envelope pushed a little bit. And we're big on, you know, if it's not the best for the animal, then we're not doing it. And sometimes what they're requesting is is kind of pushing the envelope a little bit too much. And if you're the guy that'll do that, then I guess you're the one that's going to keep working. But that's that's a well, line it that depends. I mean, yeah, it kind of depends. I mean, you have to be very careful because um, it it can come back to bite you. I'll tell you that. Oh, for sure. Well, it did. It has in Yellowstone this last year. A very famous photographer fed a fox to get a wide, wide angle image. And unfortunately the fox was euthanized. Yeah. But see, you know, that's, a, that's another thing that's interesting about the whole wildlife and nature situation is that they, you know, he's been labeled as a, a, a wildlife photographer and, you know, I, I, he shoots models usually. I mean, he's a fine art photographer, but yeah. Yeah. But there's there's people that have labeled him as you know, and then people, you know, anybody that takes pictures of animals has a tendency is you know they'll get they'll people will use use the word wildlife photographer. I mean, we've seen it in the parks, we've seen it in um, in Yellowstone. And the thing that always bothered me was when you know somebody would get dinged by a, a grizzly bear, and they'd say wildlife photographer, you know, mauled by grizzly, or you know, and you find out that it's some guy with a camera that you know. You know, people ask me all the time, "Have you got any scary stories about bears?" And I go, "No, I really don't. I've got I've got a good one about the sea otter, but no, no, no grizzly bears because I do everything I can to make sure that if I don't want to put myself in that situation for my own safety, but if I get hurt, the bear loses. And so, um, literally everything I've ever shot of grizzly bears in Yellowstone National Park and Glacier National Park has all been done from the road." And the safety of my vehicle. Now, I, sh- I shoot a lot of bears in Alaska that are on foot and, 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 and you know, close proximity, but they're a different type of grizzly bear. They're totally different. Um, not to mention that I'm doing it with a group. And when you're with a group of people, you know, it's, it's less intimidating and, and less potential for problems with a group of people. So, you know, I'm really adamant about making sure that the animal doesn't lose to because of our desire to have to get a picture. And to be honest with you, it's one of the things that's been very interesting, I think, and 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 at one time I wasn't happy about this, but we've very there's not a lot of money to be made in wildlife and natural history photography anymore. And that's a good thing. I actually think that's a good thing. It, it's I know it's taken the pressure off of me when I go taking pictures now and I go God, I need to get some big hunter sheep picture. Oh well it didn't happen today. Doesn't matter. I think we'll go have a beer tonight. <laughs> And, and then, you know, we go have a beer together and, and the next day we go out and we get some great pictures because we didn't have to push it. So it's it's really changed a lot in my career. Um, and it's been a very, very positive change. That's interesting to hear you say that. I, I would like to hear if Mark was on here with us tonight because it's been the opposite for him. I mean, he, he shot for periodicals for his whole career and that's almost gone now. Well, I did myself. I, I started at 18 years old, so, sold my first picture to Fly Fisherman magazine, um, and uh, uh, and still sell the periodic periodicals today. But you know, at one time, I made my entire living shooting for na- for outdoor related 
publications specializing in wildlife and nature. Um, and it's and and I, I got to say, you know, the way I earned my living, and I was very fortunate and earned a pretty good one. I wasn't at the top of the game, but I was up the ladder a ways, um, and I, I did all right. Uh, but you know, I saw the change coming, and there was no way around it. Uh, so I had to I had to adapt, and I actually now at the time I wasn't happy about it. I was not happy. I, you know, it been the way I'd make my living for literally three decades, and all of a sudden somebody's telling you now that you can't you can't do it. Uh, there's just no money in it. It's kind of sad, but you know we had to adapt. We had to uh, rethink how we were going to do this stuff. And today I'm still taking pictures. Actually, I'm taking more pictures a day than when I was earning my living at it. Because now we go to these places, and um, I'm basically subsidized. No, just straight out. I'm subsidized. So, and it used to bother me when people did that when I was making my living at it. But now I look at it and go, boy, was I mean, Joe and Marianne McDonald have been doing the the, the uh, photo tours for ages. Joe and I met each other at uh, the Outdoor Writers Conference in uh, Pen- uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, probably in 1982 or three. And Joe and I were both young photographers. And uh, he started into he was a teacher originally, and he started the whole teaching aspect of it early on. And I had always was of the opinion, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a living as a photographer. That's what I am. I'm not a tour guide. I'm not a you know. I'm not gonna handhold people. I'm just gonna work hard and and do it uh, uh, making pictures. And I was able to do that for three decades. But I look back on it now, and <laughs> I really admire what Joe did. I think he was smarter than I was. Um, uh, but you know, um, part of part of that tenacity that I put into it was helped is what helped get me the the two covers that I have for National Geographic and the work I did for some big publications so it's kind of a wash maybe but but now I do this today and 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 I I find you know traveling with people if they're good people um you know it's it's actually can be a lot of fun some of my best friends now are are people that have traveled with us for a lot of years I think anybody that leads tours has those types of relationships yeah, yeah. for sure Hey, real quick, Dan, I had a question for you. Um, you mentioned that one of your most popular tours is Africa. Um, I'm just going to spin that just a little bit. I'm just curious, what is your favorite tour? Is there one that you really just are drawn to that you really enjoy more than the others? Or Yeah, yeah. I, I have a tendency to really kind of lean on, uh, lean towards wanting to go do more bears, and I don't need another bear picture <laughs> Any worse than a, a third head, you know? I mean right. – um, but but I love the country that we go to to photograph bears. I love the habitat. Um, they're just amazing animals. And 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 I and, and I and I, I would have to maybe narrow that down to Alaskan bears. Um, I enjoy the fact that they're relatively easygoing. We don't have to be super concerned about being around them. There's always a chance that you could have run into a bad bear, but it's not very, it doesn't happen very often in, in Alaska. Um, and so, you know, Alaska is one of my favorite places in the world. If I, if I had to live somewhere besides Montana, it would be Alaska probably, uh, if it was in the United States, if it was outside the United States, it could very well be Kenya, but, um, uh, and, and, and it has to do with habitat and, and climate and all that sort of thing. I love the Alaska climate. It's cool. I grew up uh, all my life. I've lived. I grew up uh, born and raised in Spokane, Washington. My family and father and my mother and my four sisters all moved to uh, northern Minnesota, you know, lived there till I was 27 and then went, came here to Montana. So I've always lived next to the northern borders and I love cool 
cool weather. Um, you know, this hot stuff that we're having constantly now is is tough. But uh, yeah, so it would probably be Alaskan bears. I, I I never can seem to get enough of Alaskan bears. Yeah, it's interesting. I had my first chance to go do that this year um, for a brief period. Um, and just the, the experience I did have, you, you get, I mean, until you've had that experience, you just don't understand. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to going back at some point and, and, uh, capitalizing on that, um, that experience. And it's, it's really not about, I mean, nobody needs another bear picture. Let's just be real. Yeah, I mean, said, that's right. That's every right. bear picture that's been taken has been taken. I mean, I don't know how you could right. So, but that's not why you go do it. I mean, you go do it for the experience, you know? And so, yeah, anyways. Yep. Well, that's, that's, what's cool about the fact that you can't make money at it anymore. Now, you know, people that are going to do it now, they're going to do it because they they want to do it. You know, they want to see it. They want to experience it. Um, you're not, you know. I knew I knew photographers back in the '90s that were, you know, doing it for the wrong reasons. And uh, um, but you know, that's it's all kind of sorted itself out. So let's spin this back. So we started this conversation talking about polar bears. What are some things that you've seen? Changes that you've seen? over the last decade or two um, that people might be able to take part in reversing? Well, oh boy, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, you know, my work with Polar Bears International uh, is, is, is a constant uh, reminder of what we as humans have, you know, uh, relegated the animals to on this planet and, and, and the change in climate. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's working with PBI, uh, you know, I was, I was super involved for 10 years and, and then maybe five years ago, I kind of started having to pull back a little bit because, um, we're so tied as an organization, so tied to the climate now because it's affecting polar bears and, and, and predicted to affect polar bears drastically in the future. And it's, it's hard to read about this stuff constantly. The scientists that we work with are, you know, Dr. Stephen Anstrup, who is a senior scientist for PBI. Um, uh, he and I are pretty good friends. I, we met in the field and he's now, he's now works for Polar Bears International and, um, his science was used back during the Bush administration to get the polar bear listed as threatened on the Endangered Species Act due to what they predict is going to happen uh, as opposed to what is happening now. Polar bears are still doing pretty well, but they're seeing definitely a, a decrease in certain populations. And they don't know, to be honest with you, exactly how well they're doing because there's 19 subpopulations of polar bears and, and they only really know about three of them. There's only three three groups, if I remember right, I think it's three different populations that really have had a, are accessible enough to really study them. So, um, you know, the, 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 the number one thing, I guess, and this, and this circles back around to what we talked about a little bit earlier about contacting your representatives and your, and your, uh, uh, representatives, senators, congressmen, et cetera, congresswomen, uh, and, and explaining, you know, that there's things that are important to you as a photographer and as a, a person that loves the great outdoors. And, and right now we have this chance to, we're, we're starting to see this, this push for, uh, trying to reduce our carbon footprint that is affecting all of us dramatically and, and animals that are going to be affected dramatically. And, 
And the one thing that people can do, and I just can't express it enough, is stand up and be heard and let your senators and congressmen and and the people who represent you know that this stuff is important. I mean, right now we're talking about the the infrastructure bill and the and the and the bills that are trying to be passed by the Biden administration um, to get some of this stuff pu- passed that will help reduce our carbon footprint, and we need some government uh, encouragement for these organizations. We don't need all. We don't. It doesn't need to all be there because we've seen that that private entities are doing an amazing job. Uh, Tesla today just sold, you know, Hertz has just announced a a contract with Tesla to buy 100,000 electric vehicles. That is so exciting. I mean, to to see uh, the business community step up and go, okay, this this is serious. We need to get on this bandwagon. And, you know, my frustration with with our our uh people that are pushing back on this stuff that say you can't do this and you can't do that i mean i drive a ford f-150 pickup so i'm constant I'm, i once in a while get criticized oh you drive this big this big you know pickup that uses a lot of gas well you know it's it's way better than let's say a motorhome that people take out on the road and you know and gets even way less mileage and i sleep in the back of my truck i mean so i'm going pretty pretty moderate i i, I can't sleep in a and and work out of a um out of a you know a, a Toyota Prius, but we're going to have an electric F one fifty, and I've said that all along. You know, none of us want to go back. I mean, there was a you know a very famous uh, radio talk show host that used to talk about how you know the people who care about the environment and these people who want to see this these changes they want to bomb us back to the Stone Age. And I go no. No, we, none of us want to live in a cave. We we want to take the knowledge that we have to be able to put a rover on Mars and send back pictures and rock samples to get a Ford F-150 that can get 150 miles of the gallon or whatever it might be, right? Now we're going into electric. So, um, you know, the, the thing that's so encouraging is that once we set our minds to this stuff, and this is where it gets back to our, you know, people, what can they do? You know, once we convince our, our representatives that we want to do this, we need to do this, let's get her done. I mean, God, we're, a, we're an intelligent species and an intelligent country that, uh, man, when we set our mind to it, there's nothing stopping us. I mean, we've we've been hearing that in the in the press a, a bit, um, you know, from politicians lately that you know we we need to come together because we can always do this. We've always proven, and they're right. When we decide on something, if we really want to get it done, we literally move mountains. And uh, I just, you know, I'm, I'm I'm so encouraged by some of the stuff that I'm seeing that's getting done recently. A lot of it through private corporations, which is a good thing too. Um, but to just give you an idea of how important some government you know stimulus and some government uh direction is back in when jimmy carter who was you know really looked down upon as a as a president he had started this he had started the uh solar energy technology business and the u.s was funding at the time and then when the next administration came in they just absolutely gutted it i mean the white house with jimmy carter had solar on top of the white house <laughs> i think that's pretty cool and where would we be the chinese now are the number one Producers and the Germans are the number one producers of solar solar technology. And where would we be as a country if, hey, everybody knows this is a problem now. We're going to start using this. Uh, we're we're selling we're selling solar panels like nobody's business. So you know, so there are some positive stories about how that can be beneficial from you know some seed money from the government and and then uh, let private enterprise take it and and let's let's make it work. And there's some pretty cool things. I just cross my fingers. We're 
not too far down the road on this whole issue of this uh, CO2, CO2 problems that we're seeing. We've got an interesting one going right now that we have large uranium deposits just actually just north and west of where I live in Wyoming. And so there's a proposed nuclear power plant that uh, they're looking at right now. It's experimental technology. Don't know a lot about it, but I'll be straight up honest with you. I would rather see a nuclear power plant come in, experimental or not, than to see another windmill or wind farm thrown up in the heart of sage-grouse habitat. I, I agree. I agree. There's there's pros and cons to all of it. I just got back from a, north, a part of Montana that I was working in, and, you know, I went through a great big wind farm, um, you know, uh, area. And, yeah, without a doubt, um, if we could do something different, I'd love to do it. But we do need to figure something out that, you know, is not continually putting this CO2 in the atmosphere. But, but yes, but there are some, and, 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 and I've been reading about some of these nuclear, some of those new nuclear plants, and they've, there's a lot of technology that, you know, they've got now that they just didn't have during the Three Mile Island times or the, the Chernobyl times. I mean, it's just, it's totally different. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm wide open for it. I mean, my God, nuclear energy would be, would be an amazing way to go if we could harness the the downsides to it and 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 fix those. Uh, and my guess is, if we decide we want to do it, we can do it. Yeah. <laughs> and then the grouse and the, the golden eagles and the and the and the songbirds and the you know it's one of the things about the big windmills. They're 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 very deadly for birds. Um, so we got some we got some issues we got to figure out. But I, I feel like. There's a little bit of movement, um, and that that's encouraging. So well, and even in Europe, there's you know bladeless wind technology. There is. You saw that too. I I've seen that. Yep. There's some new things that are on the horizon that don't involve those great big wind turbines with blades on them. Um, yeah, I mean that's what we that's our advantage as a as the smartest species on the planet. We just got to make sure we we we're able to profess that at the end <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> utilize that intelligence yeah 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 let's let's see let's let's see if we live up to it <laughs> well dan we've been going for about an hour and i i want to respect your time certainly appreciate you taking the time we were kind of pressed because you're getting ready to head out on a trip we wanted to have this for polar bear week and we yeah, got I appreciate that you guys you guys really made that happen um I think it's really cool uh the folks at PBI are going to be very happy and we'll make sure we get this out to a lot of people um and I'm I'm grateful that you guys were able to kind of wrangle this together in a in a short order so yeah it'll be fun we'll get this up and and get this out to people I feel like we covered a lot of ground and <laughs> the polar bears kind of got set aside for everything else that you do that we Jason and I wanted to hear about but I think that at least lays the groundwork. People can get out, do some research, and and kind of see where they can take part. Yeah. Well, you know, um, we'll be sure to uh, get you a connection, a link to the PBI website. They have a tremendous amount of educational material on there that talks about what they're doing. Uh, they work with a lot of, of uh, uh, schools and educational units throughout, you know, from, from kindergarten all the way through college. So there's some really cool things that they have on their website that people can learn from, not to mention 
Um, this this next week, as we go to Churchill, uh, we're going to be there. There's a number of different programs that they do from the tundra up there. That's that's all educational related. Uh, we have Frontiers North, which is the company that that bought my wife's father's company, and it used to be called Tundra Buggy Tours, is now called Tundra Buggy Adventures, and they. They um, they sponsor PBI with a buggy every year. That this buggy is called Buggy One, and they are able to do research. Uh, it's it's like a roving uh, TV studio. They bring scientists in to give to give uh, talks. They get they bring uh, industry people in to discuss you know the changes that are happening and what they can do to help. And it's pretty cool. It's a, there's a tremendous amount of education going through that thing called called Buggy One. So um, people will be able to tune in with tune tune into that. And Polar Bear Week is a big deal for the, for PBI up there. In fact, I don't know if people, if you guys know this, but Polar Bears International started PBI or uh, uh, Polar Bear Day. I think it's nine years ago today or this week. It's going to be nine years ago this week. So it's kind of cool to see something that's actually you know people have latched onto that they you know. It's kind of like one of these things that, you know, they try to come up with a holiday and and sell more cards. But this one's a kind of a special day that has has good meaning to it, especially for people who love animals and in particular polar bears. Excellent. I think that's a good place to call it. Dan, where can people find out more about your work and the tours that you do? Well, we, um, we've got a website. We've been on the web since 1996. You can find us at naturalexposures.com. Natural Exposures is the name of my little company that does all this, that we kind of, is the umbrella that, that, uh, that we work under. And when I say we, as my wife and, and I have one assistant that, that works out of the office here. Um, so naturalexposures.com. You can also find us on YouTube, uh, Daniel J. Cox Natural Exposures. And, uh, yeah, uh, the rest of the night, I've, I'll send you some links on the rest of the social media stuff that we might people might be interested in coming by and visiting with. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always... Thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in town.